as you're making your way there, are you, maybe some of you are like me, the Christian life, uh, what is not what I first thought it was going to be. <laughs> when I first became a believer, I came out of a very ba- pagan background, and my my concept of Christians was that they, quote-unquote, had smiles on their face all the time, and everything was going to be a happy, joyful place as soon as you became a believer. And... Uh, Unfortunately, some of the early churches that I went to, though they did give the gospel, they also painted this picture in of uh, God has a beautiful and happy plan for your life, and uh, you should be smiling, and everything should be good. And unfortunately, some of that, uh, while this is true, God does have a beautiful plan for your life, the key is the definition of beautiful. <laughs> And what is that plan? Uh, As I've been studying this passage in Luke chapter 5, I've been encouraged and reminded once again that the Christian life doesn't always fit in our little box. (laughs) And our thoughts of what God wants to do with us may not be what we might plan. In light of uh, the many uh, college students that we have with us and, and, and young people, single people, You might have plans in your mind of what you're going to do with your life, but I would strongly warn you to evaluate that based on Scripture. Uh, Man plans his steps, but God directs his way, right? And as we see in this passage today, it really is all about faithful obedience to the Lord. (laughs) That's really what it's all about. When we finish, it's not going to be... Boy, I have a nice car, a nice house, I have five kids or two and a half kids or whatever it may be. It's not that. Matter of fact, God may have totally different plans than you think. And the best thing you can do is walk with Him and know that He is God. And that He is where your joy is found. So let's read our passage as we look today at a couple of people who walked with God. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abinjab, in Abinjah. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, daughters of Aaron, and he named and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing in his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John." And you will have joy and gladness, and may and many will rejoice at his birth. 
For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared to the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people who were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at the delay in the temple, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of the pre- his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for many months, saying, This is the way of the Lord, or the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with me with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. We pray now that you will help us to understand this passage, to understand what you did and the glory that you have shown through these events. We know that these are historical facts, that you worked in this way in the past. And Lord, you are still a sovereign and working God in lives today. We pray that you will help us to understand that you are living and active and working in our lives. Help us to trust you, to not doubt, to look to you first, and to live lives that honor you, that we may be righteous in your sight. We pray all this in the name that is above all names, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Alright, what we're going to do is look a little bit at the background of the passage, the background for this passage. First we see that there's an orderly account. Remember back in verse 3, look in your passage, and this little phrase here, Write it out for you in consecutive order. Last time we were in Luke, we saw that it would be better translated as an orderly account. The concept being that it's not necessarily going to flow chronologically perfect, but it's going to be logically laid out by Luke in order for us to understand things better. Luke is making main points. He's using literary devices to highlight special features. We're going to see this today. In the basic outline of our passage, we have verses 5 through 12 is the introduction of the pro- to the promise. The introduction to the promise. And then the promise is found in verses 13 through 17. And then finally, the response to the promise. Lord willing, we will cover the introduction to the promise today. But I want to kind of step back and I want to give you some details that are important to see the overall passage. One of the problems with doing narratives, and I want to kind of lay this out to you at, beginning, at the beginning so you understand this. 
We will often have large sections of Scripture to try to cover. It will be absolutely impossible for me to cover all of the large sections in one thing without just blowing you away with facts and details. So what I'm going to try to do as we go through narrative is I'm going to try to give you the large picture and then I'm going to back up each at the beginning and go through each section. So if you're looking at our passage here, you've got the introduction, the promise, and the response. That's the big picture of our passage, okay? We're going to look at that in a little bit more detail. And then next or this week, we're going to focus just on the introduction as most of the message. So I want you to keep the big picture in mind as we go through each of the sections. Does that make sense? That's the best way I can explain this. We'll go through it as we go. Let's look at a detailed outline first. I told you that he wrote this in a way that's orderly. He's got the introduction found in verses 5 through, tw- 5 through 12. It, unfold, it unfolds in five stages. Now, this is very interesting. Most of you, uh, Some of you can't even see the, the screen. Lord willing, we're going to have another one very soon. So you can see. But... What this fold unfolds in like a, it's called chiasm. I know I'm giving you a hard word, but hang in there, okay? Chiasm. Chiasm is a literary device, young people. This is a way that you write something so that you can make a main point, okay? He's trying to make a main point here. And he uses a literary, a way of writing in order to make a main point. What is the main point of 5 to 25? The passage actually hints at it in the way that it's written. Okay? So I want you to see it as we go along. Notice in verses 5 to 7, summary fashion, we have the condition of Zachariah or Zacharias and Elizabeth. Then it's in verse 8 and 9, it talks about Zachariah's priestly service. Okay? Look at it, 8 and 9, his priestly service. And then we have this praying multitude, verse 10. Now look at that verse real quick, okay? Look at verse 10. It says, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. Now the first time I read that verse, I thought, what in the world is that verse doing there? I'm reading along, and okay, I'm getting it. Zacharias and Elizabeth, it's all about them. And you got this praying multitude over here. Just one little verse out there. And I kept thinking, how does it fit in the context? What is he doing? Is he just giving some more detail? But then watch as we go along. It gives you and it helps it to lift it off the page so you understand what's the main idea. We'll see as we go along. Notice fourth, the angel's appearance is verse 11. After the angel's appearance, verse 12, Zechariah's response to the angel's appearance, right? Okay, verse 13, star your Bible. Verses 13 through 17 is the promise. That is the key point of the whole passage. It's almost like he's going, look, I want you to read this story, and I want you to really get it. It's all about verses 13 to 17. He writes it that way. It's all focused on this. Now you say, why is that important? Well, if you're like me, you've probably heard many sermons throughout the years of people that talked about this passage. And the whole thing was about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And the whole thing was about them and about John coming, right? But the emphasis becomes highly on Zacharias and Elizabeth. 
But that's not the main point. The main point is about the promise. The promise of a prophet to come to prepare the way for Jesus. So again, the main thing is not Zacharias and Elizabeth. And yet I'm going to sit and spend most of the rest of the sermon talking to you about Zacharias and Elizabeth. But I want you to remember the emphasis of the passage is on the promise, not on these people. And that will be a good reminder to us. Now listen to me closely. As I talk to you in narrative fashion about how somebody should live, as we're going through passages talking, be like this, don't be like this, be like this, but don't be like this. In order for you to really get it right, you must keep the main thing the main thing. It's not all about you. As I go through narratives, I don't want you to think that the passage is all about you. We're not reading the passage, so it's all about you. It's not. It's all about Christ and His glory and His honor. Do you understand? It's about the promises. And it's about what Christ did. So as we look at narrative, don't be tempted to fall into the trap of making the Bible all about you. Because it's not. It's all about Him. Do you understand? And we see it even in this passage. Notice something though. The response, like I said, a literary device. It backs up the same way it went into it. It starts with Zechariah's response to the angel's promise. See, look, verse 18. That's just like what verse? Back in 12, the, Zacharias was troubled when they saw the angel. Right here, it backs up Zechariah's response. Then the angel replies to Zacharias in verse 19 to 20. And then in, in verse 21, the marveling multitude. Now I've mentioned to you, now look, again, verse 10. Verse 10 says, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense. Now look at verse 21. That multitude is brought up again. In perfect spot. So it's perfectly parallel. So you ask, well, why did he talk about them in verse 10? He was trying to point the reader to the promise. It was all about the literary device to get us to think that way. To think about what's important. And we'll talk a little bit about how that's still application. But look at verse 21. The people... Who's the people? The people are the same one in verse 10. The multitude. We're waiting for Zacharias and we're wondering at his delay in the the temple. So again, what is the focus of our passage? The promise. The promise. You get it? Over and over and over. Zacharias mute service in verses 22 and 23. And then finally the new condition. That she's pregnant. Do you understand? And see, it backs up perfectly. This is called chiasm. It goes down to a main point and comes back to the where it started. All with the point of making the promise be the main thing. Everybody understand? So, what does this chiasm, chiasm do? It, it's, it, what this chiasm does is focus the attention of the reader on the promise. That should be in your notes. You should be able to write that in. Okay? So the main point is the promise. Today we're going to look at the lives, however, of the two genuine believers in the first section. The two genuine believers so that we will be encouraged to walk faithfully with the Lord. So again, I'm going to back up and we're going to look at the introduction. and We're going to look at these guys' lives 
Elizabeth and Zacharias, so we can know how we should live. Let's start with the introduction to the promise. The introduction to the promise. There's five stages. I told you that. The introduction to the promise unfolds in five stages. The first stage is the setting for Zacharias and Elizabeth. It's found in verses 5 and 7. 5 through 7. Let's read. Boy, that seems very technical. I hope you all got that. Did everybody get that? Pretty technical stuff. I, I, I'm going to have to work. Y'all have to pray for me on this kind of stuff. Because I've got to give you these overviews. i got to get you to understand it so that we don't just dive in and walk through and miss the whole point of the passage. Okay? So pray for me as we go through this. And I pray the Lord's helping you. Let's look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So let's look at this setting for Elizabeth and Zacharias. Notice, Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the days of Herod, king of Judea. As we know from Matthew's account... This was a wicked king. He was the one that was overly paranoid. He was so paranoid, to, he was paranoid to the point that what did he do? He had all the male children, two and younger, killed. Remember? Because he was paranoid that there was a king coming. This king was a wicked, wicked individual. This paranoia showed itself also in having family members killed. Because they thought, oh, this guy, this, he thought that these people were trying to take his throne. So he was a wicked man. So how does this apply to us? What would be an application? They lived in a wicked world with, a wicked, with wicked influences all the time. Just like us. Now, I want to warn you on something. We often look at our circumstances and we look at the wicked world we live in and we say, oh, we have it really bad. <laughs> Oh, this is really hard to live in America right now. Folks, you read the Bible and you look at the Bible, you're going to see that people have been wicked from the beginning. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, brothers kill brothers, right? We live in a wicked world, wicked influences, it's everywhere. You say, well, my family's especially bad. No, the world is especially bad. Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in a very wicked place with a wicked king. And he was right in their neighborhood. We have it no different than many of these people here. So how did they do it? How can they be described in verse 6 as those who were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly? The answer would be obviously grace, right? Let's look further. Zechariah and Elizabeth had priestly pedigree they had priestly pedigree obviously both of them had were priests or he was a priest and his wife came from the daughters of Aaron and so this was a special privilege in other words when these two got married everybody celebrated this is a perfect match <laughs> this is a special match from God that she comes from priestly lineage and he comes in he is a priest 
Put these two together, what's that? Perfection. <laughs> a perfect match. Perfect for what kind of children? Perfect children. Priestly-like children. Especially if you have a guy. If you have a boy, wow, this is the perfect match. Everything is beautiful. This is Ken and Barbie in Judea. Okay, this is perfect. So Zechariah was a member of a select group who served in his day. And despite this special status, all was not good for Zacharias and Elizabeth, as we will see in a little bit. But notice, however, there's also some more special news about them in verse 6. Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God. Wow, what a phrase. Look at this. Children, look at verse 6. Everybody, look at verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Wow, how many of you would love that to be written about you? These people, wow, right? How many of you want to be like them? This is a huge compliment. These two were described by God's word as righteous in the sight of God. This means that they were morally righteous before God. This means in God's view, these two were righteous. What? Now, some of us might be tempted at this point to think, oh, well, he's talking, this is Paul speaking through Luke. They were declared right. Well, there's not a hint here of that. Because actually the second half of the verse describes further the first half. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments. So this righteous in the sight of God must mean that they literally walked righteously in the sight of God. Blameless without guilt in front of Him. Wow! How many of you can say, that describes my life? <laughs> I don't know about you, but... At this point, I'm going, who are these people? <laughs> perfect. Wow, pedigree's perfect. They're living in a really wicked area. They're walking righteously. Man, amazing. Blameless. This is a high praise. They obeyed God. Now, they were not perfect, though, right? How do we know they weren't perfect? Well, we see it in Zacharias. We've already read about it, right? Zacharias did what? He doubted. And what did it get him? Some discipline. We'll see that next week especially. But the reality is, is what? They were not perfect, but they were directionally righteous. They were walking with God. They were serving Him. They were characterized by righteous obedience to God. One commander, uh, commentator said, these were spiritually exemplary couple. Uh, they were faithful, obedient servants of God. So the obvious application for all of us in the room is what? Would God's word describe you that way? Think about this. This is God's word. Would God's word describe you this way? 
You are both right here. Both you and your wife are righteous in the sight of God. You walk blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Does that describe you? At this point, there should be a little bit of conviction going on, probably. <laughs> Hopefully at this point you're going, Oh God, I need you! <laughs> I'm afraid that my life doesn't always characterize this. It doesn't look like this all the time. And if so, you should call out to the Savior, for He is the only one that's going to be able to help us to be this way. How many of you want a summary of your life recorded in the Bible? Zacharias gets a pretty bad rap here, doesn't he? I mean, people talk often about, oh man, why didn't he, an angel comes to you. Come on, an angel comes to you and says you're going to have a baby and why in the world would you doubt? Warning, warning, warning. If you are thinking that way, you are not like Zacharias. <laughs> in fact, you're like the doubt of him, but you're not like the righteous one that by direction is following him. We taught this week at, in our systematic uh, uh, theology study on, on Friday with some of the fellas. We talked about how the word of God, it's God's authoritative word and it's given to us, right? And we, and we talked about how if God would just come down here and talk to us and tell us to do something, we'd probably go, sure, we asked, is that real? Is that true? And I was very thankful for Jonathan's answer. <laughs> Jonathan made this statement. He said, probably not. Even if Jesus was right here, we'd probably ignore him. Because we're so prone to sin. We're pro so prone to think of ourselves first, right? But as a direction of our life, if you're a genuine believer, you want to obey him. You want to serve him because you have a new heart. They had hearts that were regenerate. And therefore they wanted to serve and obey their Lord. They were blameless. They walked guilt-free before God. I pray that that's your, a description of your life too. Even if the people around you don't, that's not an excuse for you. Walk with the Lord. What if your spouse treats you bad? And they're not righteous. Does that give you an excuse not to be righteous? No. No. They lived with the king of Herod right around them with wickedness everywhere. Walk blamelessly. How do you do that? Trust and obey. Trust in God to work in your life to accomplish these things. Notice also, though, Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children and they were old. So, now this is where it gets especially tough. Things for the Jewish, for a Jewish priest and a wife during their day. Look how Elizabeth is described in verse 25. She says at the end, after she gets pregnant, she says, very last words, to take my, away my disgrace among men. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't comprehend how much this was shame for them. To not have children, to be a Jewish priest and have a wife who had Aaron's lineage, blood. You were from priestly descendants and you can't, don't have any children. You know what that is? That is like being spit on. Everybody despised you. 
You were looked down upon. And the thing is, is all the people they ran with probably pointed it out. Very much like Job's friends, you must have done something. You must be really wicked. If you don't have children, you've got all this descendants. Y'all are supposed to be Ken and Barbie. Why don't you have any kids? You must have done something wrong, you sinners. This was a disgrace. This was a shame. I told you, the book, the Gospel of Luke, focuses on the outcast. It's a beautiful picture, ladies and gentlemen, of the goodness of our God. This is the first outcast. It's in the very first chapter, chapter 1 of Luke. He's already, God is already taking notice of, of an outcast, the disgraced one, Elizabeth, and her husband. Oh, this is encouragement to me. It's an encouragement to you, I hope. God doesn't look at your pocketbook. God doesn't look at your social status. God doesn't look at those things, folks. God is a good and kind and gracious God. And it doesn't matter what the world thinks. Doesn't. God is good. What He wants is for us to be obedient servants of Him. Faithful. Trust Him. That's it. And He loves you. And He's going to work in these people's lives in an amazing way. The outcast. He takes note of them. So, we are introduced to a very important point. Those who are righteous in their lives aren't always considered valuable to the world. She was shamed, disgraced. But they were described by God as walking righteously. That's a good hint for us all, isn't it? A good application for us all. Our value is not based on what other people think of us from the world. Our value is based on what God thinks, and that's all that matters. Believers who obey the Lord are not always valued by the world, but believers who please the Lord with their obedience is what it's all about. I would warn you on this, though. Our obedience doesn't always mean physical blessings. (laughs) Material blessings of this world. These are prime examples, huh? By the way, I just have a side question for you real quick. If they wouldn't have had any children, if they wouldn't have had John, would their life have been a success? If they wouldn't have had John, would their life have been a success? Absolutely. Because it stops in verse 6. It's all about verse 6. If your life's about verse 6... If John comes along or not, that's all that matters. Are you blameless? Are you walking with God? Are you obeying Him? Are you being faithful to Him? That's all that really matters, right? But God in His grace does bless them with a child. So again, even more than earthly blessings, how would you describe your Christian walk? I'm afraid that I would not be the same, it'd be the same kind of uh, description for me. Would it be a description for you that way? I hope so. And if not, we want God's grace to work in our life, right? 
One thing is for sure, I want that description to be at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that what you want? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I want from my Lord. How about you? If you know Him, you understand the cross, you understand His love for you, that will be your plea too. And you will know that the only way that that is possible is by what? His grace. Oh God, I need you. Let's move on to the next stage of the introduction. Zachariah's priestly service. Zachariah was faithful to his responsibilities. He was faithful to his responsibilities. It says in verse 8 and 9, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Zechariah, or Zacharias, was faithful to his responsibilities. Here we get a glimpse of what it means to be faithful. He was functioning in his role, in his spot. Zechariah was a member of a division of priests. There was roughly 18,000 priests in his day. The divisions were subdivided further into orders, groups called orders. And so again, we see him fulfilling his priestly duties. He would do this twice a year, twice a year, for two weeks. His division would be called on to do a function, his division. 18,000, and out of that division, an order would have one special job. And this one special job that he was chosen for was the highest of high position. This was the greatest privilege right here, this duty he's going to do. And it was this one thing that you look for as a priest your whole life. I can't wait to do this. I just want to do this. Now, he wasn't a high priest, but he was a priest. So he wasn't top dog. He was one of 18,000. And so here he is right here doing his duty. He's roughly one of 18,000. And at the right moment, Zechariah's division is called. So why does Luke give such details about the specifics? Why does he not just say Zechariah was doing his priestly duty? Why does he say, according to the, uh, uh, this, all this spot, before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple. Why is he giving all these little details? Why is he developing this so much? And the answer is because it's going to show again the glimpse of the glory of God working in his people. A nice little glimpse is seen in this little passage. See, if you understand the depths of all of this, it's going to show also the intricate details of the investigation of Luke, how we talked about last time when we were in Luke, how he's looking at all these little details to great detail. And then it sets the stage for the glimpse of the glory of God. Notice here, let me talk a little bit about this. Let's walk through it for just a second. I want you to think about it. Here we see the level to which God is involved in the lives of his people. Let's think for a minute. 18,000 priests in Zechariah's day. 18,000. And at the moment Zechariah's division is called, at that very moment he's called to service. And then also his order's term of service is called at this right exact moment. And then he has to win a casting of lots. Now... What did that involve? 
Well, casting lots, for lack of a better term, is like throwing dice. You throw dice down, and if it comes up a certain way, you win, right? And you get to serve. So what had to happen? 18,000 down to a small order, down to winning a dice roll. All so he could be in the temple at a specific time. Why? So he could get the promise. What is this? This is intricate details, folks. How sovereign is God in these details as they are unfolding? Is it not obvious that God is unfolding all this? It's screaming. The details are precision. Precise. Once in a lifetime, Zacharias can have this happen too. If you're a priest, you can only do this one task one time in your life. And he's old, which means he's lost a lot of dice rolls. (laughs) And at the very exact time, his wife doesn't have a child, he's old, and at the very exact time, whoop, you win! Wow. This is amazing. I get the very job, Zacharias would say, that I've been waiting for all my life to do. This one task. I've wanted to do this one task so much. And everything falls perfectly into place. How detailed is that? (laughs) What has to happen? How many people have to be alive before that have to go in to not take his spot? How many dice rolls really did it have to miss for it to happen at the right time? Oh, folks, I don't, I, I want you to understand. You, 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 some of y'all might think, well, Mike, you beat the sovereignty drum so much. Well, it's in the passages. They're here. It's there. You can't run from it. God is in control. It's there. It's over and over and over again. Look at the end of verse 19 or 20. In the middle of the promise it says, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. <laughs> the details are staggering. Staggering. How involved is God in Zechariah's life? Take a second here. Back up for a second and think about this. You have a genuine believing couple who has spent most of their life serving God. This couple is advanced in age, and every time they, uh, every time the lot fell against Zechariah, he missed out on this great privilege. On top of this, they were without a child. His wife was considered a disgrace publicly for years and years and years and years. They lived among a people who were driven by works mentality. So they were saying to him constantly, the reason why you miss out on the lot all the time and the reason why you don't have any children is because you must be doing something wrong. Because obviously God is a works-based God. The ones that have lots are the ones that God is blessing because they obey him. That's why the disciples, when Luke, when the rich young ruler, they say, and, and Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to get, in, get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's why they go, what? That doesn't make sense. You know why? Because the disciples were trained by their culture that the rich were the ones that what? Obeyed. 
God was blessing them. So everything here, all of their life is what? Set up to be what? These are the disgrace. <laughs> Man, you must be doing something wrong. You lost again, Zacharias? Man, you can't win at anything. But God had a bigger plan. Why is that important? Because see what happens is, as we're reading this passage, the spotlight is going where? On them. And it's more and more these outcasts, these righteous people, we know they... They sure are humble, but they have got problems in their heart, obviously. Everybody's looking. And what it does is it screams the promise. Now, I want you to get this and listen to me closely. All of this is not. So, at the end of the story, everybody says, Yay! Way to go, Zacharias and Elizabeth! You did it! God gave you a child! Way to go! It's not about that. It's really all about them to going and the whole world going. Who is this John? And why John? Why not name him after yourself, Zacharias? Why John? And what is he talking about? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. What is this? It's all to draw attention to who ultimately? The Savior. It's all to draw attention to God. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you sign up to be Zacharias and Elizabeth? Would you sign up to be Zacharias and Elizabeth? Would you be willing to go your whole life and be disgraced? They're advanced in age. Would you be willing to do that? To be looked down upon. To walk faithfully and blamelessly even though the world might not recognize it. All for the purpose of glorifying your Savior. This is what makes Zacharias and Elizabeth some amazing people. But ultimately it's because of the grace of God in their lives. Oh folks, I was very and very, very encouraged by this. All of this is to show God's glory because this is how God works. Often he takes the impossible circumstances. He takes you to the bottom. Shows you it's impossible. You have no way out. This is impossible. So he can show his glory off in your life. You know, it's a... uh, Ravi, I have to admit, when you told me that you lost your position... We said it again. Justin and I walked outside after you left. I was talking to Justin about it. And he said, another person comes to our church and loses their job. (laughs) By the way, all y'all visiting. (laughs) But I don't want to be at any other church than right here. Because it's the ones that are struggling and going through the battles. The ones that are going through the hardships 
are the ones that are really going to depend on God. Those are the ones that are going to be considered blameless in the way they live. Because they won't be self-reliant. They won't be looking to themselves to be something special. They will be reliant upon God. That's why Zacharias and Elizabeth are amazing. They're dependent on God. Even in horrible circumstances. Maybe you're struggling with something right now. Maybe your life is hurting right now. I want you to know there is a Savior that loves you. (laughs) How do I know that He loves you? I know that He loves you because He came and died for you. See, all of this is about Jesus. All to scream the Savior who comes and lives the perfect life, never sins, and dies in your place. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know that Savior? Do you trust in Him? That is where your joy is found, as we will see in our promise next week. Our joy is found in turning and trusting in the only one worthy of trust, God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace and goodness in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to know this, to know you better, to live lives that honor you. Oh, God, we want to be described by you as those who walk blamelessly, who obey you and serve you. We know that this will only happen by your grace. We know that none of this is possible in our own selves. And God, as we reflect on this, we see our propensity to be selfish. So how, God? Only by your grace. Please, God, help us to love and trust you and obey you. Thank you for the promise we have in Christ. I pray, God, if there's someone here, we have many here, we don't know. Lord, I pray if there's someone here that has not trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray today that they will begin to see his glory and trust in him. Your grace is the only way that that will happen. And so we pray, we beg you, Father, for that to happen. Help them to see their need. Help us to see our continuing need and to trust you. Thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this in his name and for his glory.